Hello, and welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. This is Adam Huss. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you being here. And I want to say a big thanks to the Patreon supporters who support this podcast. You are the lifeblood. You're the soil out of which this podcast can flourish. So thank you so much. And if you aren't a subscriber but would like to support and that's something you would consider, the link to our Patreon channel will be in the show notes. So thank you. And I want to offer a free resource. This is just information that I feel like should be out there in the world. California, since 1970-something, has been collecting data about every spray that has been sprayed in every commercial farm since that time. Every time you spray a spray, you're required to record that spray application, the amount, the acreage you covered, where you are, the name of your business, all that stuff, and file a report. And California has collected all that. So I don't know about other states, but I do know about California. You can request this information for any farm. That means any vineyard, any winery who has a vineyard, who is farming grapes, orchards, anything at all. You can go to the county where that is and request that information. In some cases, the counties actually have those databases online, so you just have to do a little searching on the county website to find this. It's called uh, Pesticide Use Reports, P-U-Rs, and you can find out if people who say they're sustainable are actually sustainable because you can see literally the name of every pesticide and spray that they've ever applied to their grapes or other crops. Anyway, it's an incredible resource to fact check the claims of farmers. I've often found there to be dubious claims. Um, and it's also, if you if somebody is claiming to be farming organically, you can fact check it there. Like you can find out, hey, they actually are, you know. Yeah, they're not certified, but I can see that uh, nothing that they've sprayed would disqualify them from organic certification. Anyway, it's a great resource. Check it out in your county of choice. <laughs> I also just want to tell a little story. This weekend, I was at an amazing little wine fair here in Los Angeles, actually in Santa Monica at Esther's Wine Shop. Great little wine shop. If anybody is looking for a great shop in Los Angeles on the west side, had a little fair with a bunch of great producers, um, myself included, pouring for Centralis. And it benefited oom um i'm so happy that this happened part of the result of talking about oom on this podcast was that the word got out and people are beginning to see that this is an incredible resource for wineries and winemakers here to have reused bottle bottles and be able to source clean sanitized used bottles to remove that glass that doesn't get recycled from the waste stream and reduce emissions drastically by not having to continually use new bottles and we're doing it here in los angeles it's a really cool model that's happening i cannot thank the women who started oom enough for just being the people that are taking this on and i feel like the exciting thing is that so many people are getting behind it here and and distributors are becoming the people who actually are the pickup people because they've got to go to all these retail shops and restaurants anyway to, to sell wine and drop off 
cases of wine so they can easily at the same time without adding a special trip and extra emissions pick up empty bottles from those retail shops and restaurants and take them back to um and i'm really proud to say that my distributor james endicott of vinocity selections is leading the charge on this really proud of him glad that this is happening and glad that he's making that happen for them so there's a whole fun thing that's happening here and if you want to support this podcast and support um go to um.earth that's o-o-m for our only mission dot earth our only mission is earth um.earth and use referral code owp for the organic wine podcast to let them know that you heard about them here and your purchase of bottles will support this podcast now this episode is called Assume superiority, farm scared, and pretend like you know what you're doing while killing your plants. Imagine if you were a thousand foot tall giant. How successful would you be at helping a five foot tall farmer collect her chicken eggs? Drew Herman is back for a second episode jam-packed with information and laughs. If you haven't listened to the previous episode with Drew, I highly recommend checking it out first. It was episode number 74 published back in July of 2022. And it was titled, much less ironically, Microbial Democracy for a Healthy Vineyard and World. In this new episode, Drew discusses the game-changing discovery of rhizophagy. And you can see why I didn't use that as a title. And what rhizophagy means for the way that we farm wine. And he manages to crack me up with memorable quips about once a minute throughout this entire over an hour episode. (laughs) Drew wants to impress upon us how each new discovery about the soil microbiome and the way plants function with it shows how little we know. We discuss plants' incredible genetic intelligence and the need to start assuming that they know vastly more than we do about how to take care of them. We discussed recently discovered fallacies about fallowing and soil pH. We talk about the desperate need to reintroduce breeding new vines as standard practice in wine and the stunning genetic potential in a seed, including a full arsenal of microbiology that actually teaches it how to grow. Given our deepening understanding of our ignorance, Drew beseeches us to stop blundering around with fertilization and pesticide programs, the impact of which we really don't understand. The vines we farm, as it turns out, are much better farmers than we are, and our efforts to help them usually just gets in their way. Like a mushroom foraging expedition, there are non-sequitur delights scattered throughout this conversation all the way to the end, when Drew discusses the importance of voles and how to manage them in the vineyard. He also offers numerous free resources to deepen your knowledge and learn how much we have to learn. Drew is vineyard manager at J.K. Carrier Wines in Oregon, but I think his true gift may be in making deep soil science as fun as playing in the dirt. Hopefully playing in the dirt sounds fun to you. If not, well, just think of something fun and then associate it with Drew. Enjoy! Drew, welcome back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, I just, like I was telling you, I re-listened to our last conversation and anybody listening who hasn't listened to that should go back and listen to the microbial democracy with Drew Herman uh, episode a few well, about a year ago probably a little over was it yeah it's a little over a year ago you don't have it um, remembered I know I have every <laughs> every one of the one hundred and some episodes memorized verbatim um, <laughs> chapter verse date and time 
Uh, I can remember where I was when I talked to you. I knew you were pro. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> uh, um, I've been following along your Instagram, which continues to be entertaining and informative. You're, you're doing garden flexes now, it looks like. Yeah, pretty now hard. Throw, yeah, throwing down, <laughs> throwing down for anybody that wants to put their garden up against yours. We just Is inoculated it? a couple beds with mushrooms too. So that'll be a pretty hard nice. flex when that. When those things pop, oh, amazing strophifaria. Uh, yeah, right. those and, and blue oysters, and then we did like a big uh, spore mass slurry of uh, morel stuff. So we'll see if those oh, nice. pop or not. I I had really I actually had a, from what I've heard, and this has been my experience too. So I actually got some mulch that happened to have morel in it, and we we had a flush of morel the spring after I applied. Um, this this fine mulch that we just got from our local like mulch place uh it was just amazing awesome. yeah it was just super cool and i was like oh my god i'm gonna have morels and then that was it and from what i've heard this is the same thing like you will get a flush and that'll be it like it won't come back um but good luck i hope it does but i'm just yeah thanks you like, really you really brought that down <laughs> <laughs> never mind <laughs> <laughs> maybe if you like burn that land you know uh, well what, what we did is every bucket of the, of the slurry we basically made a compost tea but we used morel spores and it. Kept, kept it clean and then before we pitched it we diluted it and then threw a little wood ash in each bucket to try to mimic a fire i've yeah, heard that perfect. that that can work but whatever i don't know now i my confidence is completely shattered in this project <laughs> <laughs> that's all right as soon as they pop your confidence will be through the roof it'll have to like yeah and you'll see it online yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> i i will be like tagged as like see <laughs> um <laughs> well that's awesome and speaking of mushrooms i was thinking of the word mycophagy this morning i'm a mycophage mycophage um <laughs> a, oh, a mushroom eater I'm a mushroom eater, yeah, because I, I, I want to talk to you about rhizophagy, which is root eating, but it's kind of a, it's, yeah, I guess that's the, that's the root, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean that, but um, what, since the last time we talked, which covered a lot of ground, have there been new discoveries in soil? Yeah, um, well, it, it's, I would say more newly published um, yes, stuff. right. But Stuff for rhizophagy, the thing you're talking about is, was uh, came out of Dr. James White's lab at Rutgers, and he's been studying it for seven years. But releasing his stuff, um, he helped Jeff Lowenfels, who wrote all the teeming with bacteria or nutrients books. Um, he's writing, helping write the new um, edition right now, uh, and um, he's also working with John Kemp from advancing eco-ag to kind of disseminate this information. But yeah, it's really cool. So it it all comes down to um, uh, something that's been being studied for a long time, which is exudates, which is what um, basically root excretions is the best way to think about it. And we used to think that it was just like mucus being excreted from roots to kind of like lubricate uh, the soil so they could, you know, work through it. But 
uh, we started finding out that the mucilage, the exudates, is just chock full of many different um, like compounds, like flavonoids and hormones, and uh, it started to kind of beg the question, you know, why are these things here in the first place? Uh, these are things that you know exist within the plant. Why are they being put out into the root zone? And then also, why are they being captured again by the roots? And it just didn't really make sense to a lot of people. And so then, I'm sure you've heard of mycorrhiza. Um, yep, yep. So those are those are funguses. Um, most of them, many of them, are beneficial for plant growth, and they will team up and send their mycelium through the soil to harvest nutrients, especially phosphorus, and make that available to the plant. And what they found is that in these exudates, there's actually quite a few signaling hormones that are fostering these relationships. And while looking at that, they started noticing that, you know, these funguses were swallowing whole entire microbes and then passing those into the plant. And they were like, wait, what a second, that's weird. And then they started digging even deeper and noticing that actually at the root tips, the plants themselves were um, absorbing these rhizobia, these rhizobacteria, as they've been termed, bringing them inside the plant, um, you know, weakening their cell walls, extracting what nutrition that they need. And then, and then the bacteria themselves are actually ejected out of the root because they stimulate the growth of root hairs. And then they end up at the end of it, uh, the root hair, they get ejected, they reform their cell wall and by that time, they've usually multiplied um, multiple times. So the plant was, in, in essence, farming these bacteria. Um, and right. almost all plants do this. And so it's pretty fascinating to think about. So you, like, if plants are spending you know, this much energy and time on absorbing microbes and extracting nutrients from them, then it must be pretty important. And it uh, turns out that it's extremely important and it explains why a tree can just grow out of a cliff face without any soil. It's because of these relationships with these rhizobia and these mycorrhizal funguses that um, are actually going in and mining things that the plant can't get on their own. And right. pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, this is, this has been a big, well, there's so many things in that, like it, it just explodes into so many different concepts and ideas. One of which is this idea that I think is really important, um, a really important understanding that has been misunderstood for a long time about uh, specifically terroir and wine, which is this e extreme overly narrow focus on geology when it comes to terroir, because the geology is meaningless without the biology. Like the biology is what literally converts rock into flavor. Yeah, it, great, right? you cannot separate the two. They're right. extremely related. That and, and just general physics, those three things like soil, soil biology, the actual like stuff it's made of, and then the physics of that site. Those those are the things that drive terroir, in my opinion. Can you tell me more about the physics? That's really interesting. Well, yeah, sure. Just just like, for instance, like the electrical exchange capacity of the soil. Or um, that's a big pH. one. Like, how, how what kind of charge can it hold? Or its pH? Like, how are how are charges converted in the soil? Um, water is a huge one too, right? Like the actual physical presence of water, or like the saturation content of ions of that soil. 
like those things are all really important for how things even uh, transpire literally through the plant. So um, I think that those things can't be separated out at all. They, they have to, everything has to be looked at as like yeah. one big thing. Like for instance, we used to believe that pH was like kind of like the determining factor in nutrient availability. And everybody's seen that charge. At, at this pH, you know, this is available, this isn't. And then as the pH changes, you see the chart change. And that was written back in the 40s and kind of never looked at again. And uh, what we're finding out now because of studying carbon sequestration in plants is that pH is can be a limiting factor, but in the presence of a lot of organic uh, compounds and of strong microbial community, pH is not a not that detrimental if you have it really low or really high. Right. And I I've heard that. I heard that I've heard that the the biology can actually sort of buffer and 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 alter the pH as needed yeah. for I mean experience. really it's just like the big problem in soil is that things are constantly like being chelated or like broken down and um bonded to things and um usually it's just a momentary flash in time. And so often they'll like, they'll, you know, rebond to each other, like aluminum and phosphorus is, is a big one. Like aluminum has a pretty strong hold on phosphorus and in the presence of no calcium, aluminum and phosphorus end up getting taken up together. And aluminum is pretty toxic to grapevines specifically. Mm. So you kind of want to, to think, to, to minimize um, that bonding. And the best way to do that is give a, give it another hand to hold. So carbon has a couple of hands that they're willing to give out generally. So if you, the more carbon you have in your plant, if there's a, a separation of aluminum and phosphorus, you have a re- much better chance of bonding that to carbon, which the plant needs anyway. And, um, and that aluminum can, you know, fuck off and go find somebody else to be friends with. <laughs> um, Sorry. You know, yeah ideally that's what it does um (laughs) i uh i mean what you said i mean bringing in terroir and and your response to that about how we have to think about it as all of these things connected you know this is where my mind went with rhizophagy too which was when you understand like so if if i'm if i'm you know I, i read a little bit of about it and it it to me, it just looks like the at the at the root level, at the tip of the root level, where this is happening, it's almost like the borders become dissolved, and there is no distinction between you know plant, you know microbes, soil. It all you know like it just becomes one system, like that the like in this realm at the at the edge, at the the liminal edge of of, of a living plant. It's almost like you can't think of a plant as a plant anymore. Like it is, and you can't think of it as separate from soil or separate from the bacteria and, and, and micro mycorrhizal fungi and everything else in there, because it's like, they're being, they're becoming each other <laughs> like really rapidly. Uh, yeah. And there's, it's just like, yeah, like it, they're one system. Like it's, it's a, it's yeah. Like I don't know what else to put it. It's really interesting too, because at where this is happening is all the cells are undifferentiated. So they're stem cells, basically meristematic tissue. And so it is literally like right there on the border of limitless, you know, opportunity and, you know, quickly 
adapting genes, you know, like, like it's, it's amazing what can happen right at that root tip, because like the plant is literally, it's not looking, you don't want to personify plants, otherwise you'll have feelings for them. But the, I'm, I'm joking, I love plants, but the, <laughs> right there at like, that Wait, tip, I have lots of feelings for plants. <laughs> But there's like infinite genetic, uh, you know, opportunity for a plant to deal with the environment that you put it in, which is why, you know, many plants grow really well anywhere because they will figure out how to make partnerships and what exudates they have work. Now, they may not thrive. And I think that's a a big thing is like if the genes aren't there, the plant's not going to do well. If it can't figure out how to hack the local community, you know, and become a, a member then, you know, it may not do well, which can, you know, that the big part there is then you end up getting all sorts of like micronutrient deficiencies because it doesn't know how to talk the soil into mining that for them, for a lack of a better phrase. And that's where you get, you know, basically just bad matches, like things that are maybe widely planted out somewhere and riddled with disease. And it's mostly because those plants from a very basic nutritional point of view, don't have everything that they need to make to synthesize proteins that would protect themselves. That's really interesting. Um, so I guess the bigger question and the the sort of obvious implication, I'll give you like a leading question here is, you know, what does that mean for how we farm? Hey, I'm jumping in here to give a shout out To our sponsor, Vermont Vineyards. When I say our, I mean yours and mine. The support I receive from folks like our Patreon subscribers and our sponsors, like Vermont Vineyards, literally makes it possible for me to produce this show for you. Vermont Vineyards provides design and installation of vineyards of all shapes and sizes in Vermont, New England, and beyond. Vermont Vineyards aims to reduce stigmas attached to hybrid grape varieties and New England wine regions while bringing cold climate viticulture within reach and enjoyment. If you're considering planting a vineyard in the New England area, check out Vermont Vineyards at vtvineyards.com slash OWP. That's all lowercase, vtvineyards.com slash OWP. Well, it's... I think the biggest thing that it means is that we don't, we're just now learning that we don't know anything and, <laughs> to be, and that, and that we all need to be really honest about that. We have no idea how our current fertilization programs and our current pesticide uses are interacting, um, you know, at the root level. There's been quite a few studies that show that many of our practices completely inhibit um, the the proliferation of bacteria that go out and mine things that we need. As a matter of fact, when you give a plant certain fertilizers, specifically phosphorus, they're less likely to throw like strigalactones out into the soil to form, you know, partnerships with funguses that are going to mine that phosphorus for them. So our fertilization can actually lead to more, um, you know, nutrient deficiencies in the long term. So that's really interesting. And, you know, something like Roundup, you know, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan. I don't know if you've ever picked that up, but... (laughs) I don't know if you but Roundup, you know, either. can inhibit the uptake uptake of manganese, you know, in a plant, and that's really, really um, a vital nutrient for just photosynthesis. And it's right. also a really vital nutrient in us. So when we are growing crops with and we're surrounding glyphosate, you know, 
the nutrition that we're getting is is diminished from those things. Like there's plenty of studies that show that, you know, you'll get certain deficiencies in things sprayed with, you know, uh, weed killers. Yeah. Which it's, oh, but that's what's crazy is, is so those nutrient, that nutrition, sorry, is, is, is void in the new next seed crop. And then those things carry on years and years after that. But what's really interesting is guess what seeds come with? They come totally loaded with bacteria that is passed from the roots to the seeds in the plant before the seeds drop. So sometimes good things are passed on too. But it's really interesting to think that like the full genetic potential of a plant is really encapsulated in the seed, including the microbiome that it needs. Hmm. Do you know anything about plant breeding? I mean, grape vine breeding at all? Because I know, I know a little bit. I, I know more it, about like vegetable plant breeding. Is, but isn't it standard practice to sort of sterilize the not sterilize the seeds, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, basically, like clean them. So you're, I mean, the idea is you're preventing bad things from getting passed into the new plant, or you know, sort yeah. of like. You know what I mean, but are yeah, we you potentially stay doing? Scared. <laughs> so what? You got to stay scared. It's important right. when you farm. <laughs> um, so they, there was an interesting experiment where they wanted to see, you know, what the microbial influences was on. I'm pretty sure that they used uh, Aridopsis as the as the plant, but they wanted to see, you know. Um, what sort of influence that that culture that comes on a seed has on plant growth. And so they sterilized the seed and not the soil. They sterilized both and they didn't sterilize anything. And what they noticed in the one that was fully sterilized is the roots didn't go down because we always think that it's like cytokinins or like hormones like that that are driving or oxen that are driving plants down into the earth. Or just and, gravity. Yeah. Yeah. Or just gravity. Right. Gravitropism is or right. so they um but what they found is that the ones that had uh had the rhizobia or had like the beneficial cultures went straight down and fully populated really fast and i th- thought that was phenomenal that that huh. roots wouldn't even go down without the presence it's actually, of roots. it's actually getting like just basic information from the microbiology on it like mm-hmm. just real basic like how do i grow as a plant is being communicated by these endemic microbes. Is that, yeah. is that well, what I'm... what's what's funny is a seed is born with enough seeds to farm for itself, which is really interesting to think about. Like it's a whole little business plan in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's it is um it's a little it's a little I, so if we're farming farmers, what what role should, like how does that impact how we should think about our farmers that were farming. Well, I think that um, I think that the interesting thing is to understand that it's not that plants are conscious and that they know what they're doing, but they genetically have like over you know many many years, at least three or four, figured out how to how to exist in the environments they're in and how to do their job. And we kind of assume that we have the best ideas about how a plant should. Uh, B or like we run studies and figure out all oh, if you add copper at this time you'll get a huge boost in bloom or whatever and what we're really doing is micromanaging our, our employees and in a way that we don't understand our boots aren't in the ground <laughs> and 
we have no idea what we're doing compared to what plants are doing. So I think the, the big thing, the big takeaway is that our nutrition programs and our pesticide programs are killing our plants. Just <laughs> bottom line. Uh, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. Um, and then it kills us. <laughs> right, right, right. So it sounds like to the extent that we're doing anything, we want to promote the biology and the soil, um, promote a probiotic soil, and give them anything that they need to be healthy and happy, uh, them being the whole system of thems. Like, am I... Yeah, no, pro probiotics... Probiotics are important. Um, they're definitely important. As you know, we use compost tea um, yeah. and we use compost that we make from winery waste and um, we have sheep grazed the vineyard. But I would say probiotics are one part of the equation. They need something to eat too. And I think the biggest thing you can do for your soil is prebiotics, you know, like prebiotics. Yeah, like starches, cellulose, wood, wood or, you know, Carbon, sometimes like just straight, you know, molasses, people use it as like a humectant or, but it is carbon. Like at, at the end of the day, you know, sugar is carbon. So, and that's what plants are capturing and turning, you know, in during photosynthesis, they're making carbon stored as sugar and they're releasing that to the soil and, you know, as currency for other things like phosphorus. And so I think that more of a focus on on making sure that that currency is there you know like we use humic acid and and molasses in our sprays um and you know we definitely have seen a benefit for our site but there's other people who don't use anything that have great looking vineyards like uh bethel heights um ted castillo that's uh mimi's uncle yeah yeah so he he doesn't fertilize at all and their vineyard looks great and it's interesting because he's you know th they have a pretty good production there and, and a smart winemaking team but like you know he never really listened and he's always been taking down data um he never listened to the experts you know yeah and they're not doing anything and their vines look great so i think that that there's no obvious blanket answer for all sites but I definitely know that the that there's more evidence that we should be doing less, and yeah, and just kind of like fully supporting the systems that the plant already has. Like, like sometimes injecting a little cash into the economy can be good, you know. And it's the same thing with with carbon. <laughs> sometimes injecting a little carbon into that whole system can really make the system foster or prosperous. Yeah, I mean, and you just listened to that, um, you know, Peter Schmidt interview yeah, that I had and where, where he's talking about like he doesn't like to do anything for his vines because then he feels like they become dependent on him yeah um and it's that same thing where it's like yeah you don't like no need to even yeah and, and it, it it also seems like that becomes more and more true with age uh with a perennial um, mm -hmm. you know to a certain point i guess well uh, i mean they figure out so much stuff like and and it's i always say that plants have a, a vascular memory like they each season is different. And so even just like the size of the, the, um, what are they called? <laughs> the xylem, even the size yeah. of those tubes, like the capillaries vary during drought seasons and, and, uh, and wet seasons. And so they have like 
like when plants are water stressed, you can literally hear, you can hear it. It sounds like this popping sound and it's literally like the same as if you were like sucking uh, through a straw and got to the bottom of the glass, that gurgling noise. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you can hear that. It's really low frequency, but like, you know, I'm sure that insects can hear that. And right. so, you know, I don't forget what my point was, but I do know what I want to say as far as um, not spraying things and not fertilizing. What's really interesting, there's this book that I think everybody should read called Healthy Crops by Francis Shaboso. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it's on the Gaia Foundation website for free. And it's just uh, his theory of trophobiosis and like how um, disease and pathogens work and what they've been studying this stuff for a very, very long time, or he was studying it for a long time. It's no longer around, but they were studying, you know, what it was that actually that pathogens were going after in plants. Yeah. And what they were going after was a, a buildup of, of things like amino acids. Um, because, you know, there was like some limiting nutrition that was preventing those amino acids from being turned into proteins. And a lot of the times our fertilizer programs aren't balanced. And so we'll throw a whole bunch of nitrogen down because we want to green it up and you'll see the green up and then you'll immediately see a pathogen come pretty soon after. That's yeah. why it's pretty, it's pretty um, common to see like uh, to see powdery mildew in your most vigorous vines right. because there's plenty for them to eat, but plants that are balanced nutritionally, they're they are building proteins and they're synthesizing proteins and breaking proteins down at a more stable rate. So there isn't a backlog of anything to eat in the first place, which just makes the plants generally unattractive to insects and disease. Yeah, love that. I, I wanted to go back to something that you now have mentioned or sort of alluded to a couple of times, like plant consciousness. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm, you know, I like wonder where you fall in the scale of being like a plant plant empath versus like a, you know, a reductive scientist kind mm. of thing. <laughs> I think that it's pretty, I, I think that we have an understanding of consciousness um, and we, we put great meaning into that. It's what makes us special in the center of the universe. Um, but how cool would life be if you didn't have to think at all? <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> Like, what if you were just completely prepared to survive and you didn't have to, like, you know, hustle? That, I, I feel like plants have it figured out, honestly. They are like, no, I'm going to, I'm not leaving this small town and they just, like, do well. Right. <laughs> I gotcha. I yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that, well, I studied animal behavior in, in, uh, in school and um, I want to say it was Descartes. Uh, the philosopher that he had this like philosophy that animals were nothing more than complex machines. And that kind of dominated the field of biology for hundreds of years. Right. And it wasn't until we started studying animal behavior that we were like, oops, like they definitely have feelings and complex thought and enjoy games. And, you know, so I would say that, like just, yeah just to like assume that plants, you know, don't have something that we haven't recognized yet is, is foolhardy. I'm not going to say that, you know, they have languages or anything, but they do. 
speak through exudates and chemicals, even on their leaves. Like we're talking about rhizophagy, but right. but the leaves are also throwing exudates out to attract microbes that they want growing there and pro proliferating. So right. like the whole plant is like, it's definitely communicating with the world around it. It's just not the way we talk. And you've heard of like Japanese forest bathing, right? Or, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm not, yeah, I, I can't even remember the, the term, but yeah, where they're actually, you know, they found that trees are actually sort of showering us with lovely little chemicals as we walk under them that are soothing and comforting and, and attractive, like, so that we'll come back and, you know, we'll, we'll be, we'll be, um, we'll like them essentially. I yeah, mean, no. I know. I'm anthropomorphizing, but, um, right. Well, I hate like, that word too, anthropomorphizing. Like, yeah. I feel like that is the root of the problem is the uh, idea that, uh, of the otherness in that is like, right. well, don't forget they're not people when, when what you're really saying is don't forget we're more special. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, no. And, and I guess I was about to say something about that too, which was like the fact that maybe plants have this different approach to life, which doesn't require them to think in the way that we think because they've sort of figured it out. Um, just genetically, like they just genetically know how to survive. They've got everything they need to survive. Doesn't, doesn't mean it's, inferior <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. it's like i think like we go from like we have this thing that they don't have therefore we're more special and it's like actually it could be to our detriment you know what I mean? it could be like a real limitation of, of Genetically, us plants are way smarter than us like way smarter than us so if we have an extra chromosome or a deletion of a chromosome it could it's it, most of the time fatal but the plants you can triple the amount of chromosomes they have it's called polyploidy they can they can just like recomp like have a recombination of like every gene in their body everything can be all scrambled and they're still going to be a plant and function now sometimes it's uh not a good um mutation obviously some but for the most part plants they their genes can mutate to be wildly different than what they were and they're going to be okay so i think that that that's what makes plants like really good at surviving is is their genetic potential for being in an environment is much better than ours like all around right interesting yeah unless unless it's merlot on the east coast <laughs> yeah um well it's funny i mean those the vinifera right we let's talk about vinifera for a second because it is this thing i mean it's got all these limitations depending on the context of where it's grown it's 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 got a lot of struggles in moist the moist climates of the east coast um you know probably shouldn't be grown there just because you know it, it takes so much coddling and inputs to even enable it to survive um i mean but having said that like so we have i you know i get grapes from a vinifera vineyard here in los angeles and this vineyard is now like a hundred years old. Um, I'm not sure if it's own rooted and this is another thing that we should bring up, but it's, you know, it's grown in sort of a, a very well-drained rocky sandy loam and there's an aquifer not too far below the surface, depending on the year. It can be, you know, 12 feet below the surface or 20 feet below the surface. Um, it's not watered and it's not sprayed. And 
you know, it's not like overproductive, but they're just little bush vines that aren't aren't trained, they're not head trained or anything. They're not trellised and they pump it out and they're still kicking, you know? And do they get a little mildew? Sure. Do they, you know, do they but nothing is killing them. Nothing is like impinging their production. And it's sort of like they've figured it out, you know, over time. And they mm-hmm. are, you know, they're Zinfandel, I believe. So they're they're, they're vinifera. Um, so it seems like, you know, even vinifera, like with given time and, and epigenetic sort of in, in, you know, time to have these epigenetic responses to its environment could mm-hmm. come around um, and find a, a, a balance, find an equilibrium and, and a way to, to just to be hardy and resilient in its own place. But, you know, this is also Southern California where it's not overly taxed with many things. You know, it's like far enough inland that it's not getting the 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 moisture that I get here at my place. It's another 50 miles inland. So it's getting hot and dry, um, with, you know, short spring. So it gets cold, colder in the winter and short springtime uh, and not a lot of moisture except, you know, during that winter months and not during the growing season. So, you know, there are some some of those factors, just environmental context. But I don't know. Uh, what are your thoughts about, you know, like can can vinifera, could you, could you, if somebody really loves vinifera and they want to grow it, could you just let it figure do you think it could figure it figure it out in a tougher context um i think that i think that if you were a veggie farmer um you wouldn't like force a carrot onto your property that doesn't want to be there you know <laughs> don't um, grow a carrot in the desert yeah yeah but you know like wine winemakers specifically like um or you know people that want a beautiful vineyard they just decide like you know oh i really like this kind of wine most people go to somebody regionally and say like what works here that's what a lot of universities do work behind but we as grape farmers stopped breeding um forever ago and we really shouldn't have done that um (laughs) like like we are we as an institution like the grape institution just kind of decided one day we call them noble varieties and like that was the end of it Right. Like, right. And and it was just honestly not a good idea. Like I said, there's genetic potential, like infinite genetic potential in like, you know, most plants. But one of the ways that plants naturally like work in those environments are through, you know, what reproduction is viable. So like the seeds that fall to the ground and germinate, like that's how like, you know, Norton was like potentially uh, accidental cross, you know, between right. vinifera and and uh, a Native American vine. Yeah, the Acevelas, yeah. And, like, you know, it worked. They found it. It worked. It was pretty disease-resistant at the time. And, like, that's, you know, how, like, American wine culture was really born was through the breeding of vinifera with these wild types that existed here and made stable hybrids and then one day we just decided that they all tasted foxy and weren't of good quality and it really doesn't make sense to me and i really think that like that's where a majority of our focus should be on is is developing and breeding um not not memorizing spray modalities (laughs) i mean yeah i can't even i I mean this is me repeating myself but yeah i just agree with everything you said so thanks for saying it i i mean i 
I, I think I've made the point, but I'll make it again that like the amount of time that we have spent spraying, developing sprays, like studying efficacy of sprays. If we'd spent a fraction of that on breeding and selecting new varieties, we'd have like a pantheon of delicious new noble grapes that were completely resistant to everything in our environments. Um, just in the last, you know, 70, 50 years, like, yeah. you know, the, in Which, the amount of time that we've built like an American wine industry around those seven noble varieties, quote unquote noble. I think because there is, um, it takes so much time to breed perennials, which, you know, I say that, but yeah. there's some people that have come out, you know, in their lifetime with like 30 varietals that are yeah, yeah, yeah. economically viable. Homer. But I think there's a generational <laughs> onus for like, like for you to, for individual like farmers to be breeding like for the benefit of the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. Like the yeah. climate that we're going to have in 50 years is not the climate we have today. Like we just right. know that. And right. so it's time to take this seriously. And if, if you are, like believe that you can't grow um, vinifera without spraying pesticides or herbicides, then I think to me personally, the answer is pretty simple. Don't grow vinifera. It's not... Yeah. And, you know, like the other thing that's really interesting in that book I was talking about called Healthy Crops, these were the guy, these guys were studying um, plant disease, uh, like right after the phylloxera epidemic, like they were looking at these grafted plants. And one thing that a lot of the farmers noticed that switched over to, to these grafted plants is that these plants were sick. They were more prone to powdery mildew. They were more prone to botrytis. And uh, one of the big reasons for it was those rootstocks, they selectively uptake and they've developed to harvest nutrition for a different plant on top. So right. they har harvest like just enough zinc for their needs, but the guy on top needs way more zinc. Right. And so right. grafting is is a elegant solution that got us, you know, to that I kept the industry from entirely failing. But right. it is not the end-all solution. It was just kind of something to get us over the hump. We definitely need to go back to matching the roots with the tops. Like that, it has to be breeding. It has to be solid plants ungrafted. Yeah, yeah. Well said. That's a that's a good tie-in to that because I wanted to bring that back around to the to the rootstock thing. Um, do you want to talk about fallowing <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> as a yeah. practice? Yeah, it's this whole new subculture thing. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> following, following is is the, the act of of leaving things alone. Uh, so when you have um, an outbreak of disease, generally you would maybe like the common recommendation is is to rip your vines out and then leave it alone. And why is that? Well, because when you leave it alone and things just grow, the microbiome in that field fixes itself. Generally, pathogens, if they're, um, if they're winning the war, which is how we always phrase it, it's because their population or the um, conditions of the soil are one that favor their presence. But when you leave things be and you stop introducing um change into that environment, it will reach a balance eventually. And 
you will end up with a healthy microbiome just by not doing anything. And you can see that just by even just a measure of carbon, um, even just measuring the amount of carbon sequestered over something that wasn't tilled and was tilled over a long period of time. Uh, and that's an important distinction. Over a long period of time, there's way more carbon in the soil. And the reason there's more carbon in the soil, it's mostly in the form of what's called necromass, which is just dead microbes that are right. just like there. And within those dead microbes, they still have all of their own like vacuoles, like their cellular storage um, areas. And those things are still have the same nutrients that they mined. Because usually these microbes, when they're like mining nutrients, they're not recycling them within their body. They basically mine, 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 and then die. Right. And so everything that they have is there. So in these old soils, you have tons and tons of carbon from these old dead things. But what you also have is all of these available micronutrients to the plant. Now, the reason I said it takes time is because if you plant a cover crop and till it in, you will get a pretty big immediate dump, jump in carbon and your biology will go up the charts, but the kind of biology you're getting is mostly bacterial. And in a perennial system, what we want to focus on is these long-term fungal partnerships. And those guys, they do not respond well to tillage because they rely on this complex, fragile net of, you know, fingers out in the soil. And when you till those up, then they can't eat and you end up killing your soil that way. Well, yeah. I mean, going back to the breeding and everything like that, I... I mean, I, I just wanted to throw out an encouraging word that, yes, I mean, as an industry, breeding has been largely abandoned. And yeah, we just stopped and built an industry on seven varieties of grapes. But there have been breeders who have continued breeding. Uh, it's just more like a, you know, like in private pockets here and there around the country. And I think finally, not finally, but at this point, be, you know, because you say as it it can take years. It can take a while to make this happen. Like 10 years is probably like a good short cycle for breeding something successfully. If you, you know, something that is a successful new variety, uh, it could, it could be a lot longer than that. They just released Ravel, uh, from Cornell, which is like 40 years in the making. I think people have been using it, but it just hadn't been officially released. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was like, you know, initially developed, started being developed 40 years ago. So that's like probably the, the long end of the spectrum. Um, but I do think about that. I mean, I think about, you know, as, as I'm like in my late 40s, uh, like, and I want to start a vineyard, like it has really, I think it's this really cool thing that I think is a, a privilege of, of getting older and thinking about farming is that you necessarily have to start thinking long term and then when you think about what something you know you, you know that you're going to especially perennial farming vines trees things like that you know that what you plant in the next five ten years and 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 beyond will outlive you and ideally and so you start thinking about that you start thinking about well this is like a you know 40 year plan and i'll probably be dead in 30 kind of thing and <laughs> Um, and then you're like, but why does it have to be a 40 year plan? I mean, isn't it like a 230 year plan? Like, shouldn't I be thinking more like that? Like, shouldn't I be thinking about, a like building a, a system that like, if I was just removed from it would be, con would continue to regenerate and be resilient and 
take care of itself in a way if like nobody was caring for it if like if there wasn't like another generation because i also don't have kids so it's like i I think about that like you know if i don't have one of my nieces and nephews doesn't want to take over you know the the farm then i want that farm to take over itself in a weird way and Mm -hmm. um i I don't know it's this is just more ruminations about that but you know it is it is interesting how we have expiration dates for vines like especially in napa you'll see them pulling out you know whole vineyards to throw in something young that'll be more productive right um it is it it blows my mind yeah it blows my mind because there's like isn't there like a 750 year old vine somewhere on like roanoke island or something like that Hey, I'm just jumping in here to say that travel has been one of the most important ways in my life of expanding my empathy and understanding of different cultures and expanding my perspective on the world to include a sense of humility for my own upbringing and have a perspective on where I came from. So I'm really happy to have Catavino Tours as a sponsor for this podcast. And you can support this podcast by going to Catavino Tours dot com slash owp that's c-a-t-a-v-i-n-o tours with an s dot com slash owp catavino tours provides luxury wine and food travel tours in spain and portugal and they can do this all with a very thoughtful approach to how to reduce their ecological impact and make it a thoughtful and quality valuable experience for everyone involved it's like a, like a 400 yeah in north carolina <laughs> the oldest one in north america that's known is like an old um muscadine yeah that it, at some point covered more than an acre of land one vine like it was just this sp- i mean to me like i like just the image of it i haven't seen it but just thinking about this thing that sprawls over like acres of land just seems so like prehistoric to me <laughs> like so like like I dinosaurs are roaming around and there's these giant vines you know that are like these massive like tons of grapes from one vine um and that's really what it is i think the reason it's made it so long is because it's not on vsp yeah <laughs> you're probably I mean, I think you're joking, but I think you're also serious. Like, it's probably I'm true. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that, well, I have a huge, like, a, a, I mean, I'm not a huge, I have a big inclination to believe that um, mar- remarrying vines to trees will in, in create longevity for them, better longevity, as well as better health in general, um, as well as oh. all these other things that we're talking about. But I just think, like, you know, that's for, yeah, that's how they evolved. So why wouldn't it? Why would why wouldn't that be in their genetics to be like I'm gonna be I'm gonna partner up with these guys uh, and and we're gonna benefit each other. I agree. I we should, I I think that there's a couple people out there that are are doing that matching vines back to trees, but it's uh, obviously uh, difficult um, to persuade an entire industry to go back to that. <laughs> yeah, no, there are challenges for sure. It's but not, it's, uh, it's yeah. interesting working with with vines and um you know for over a decade now it uh it is interesting to see like how much our vine health um is impaired by our cultural practices specifically trellising but also just the way we prune and um you know 
there's so many things we can do to keep plants healthy when even it just comes to like pruning and um, and and taking advantage of the plants like uh, natural structures to avoid disease, you know, and and mm. for the most part, we don't even take those things into consideration. We just spray, uh, you know, a preventative. Right. But even just the way that we deal with plant architecture, you know, in our trellis systems is just begging for plants to get ripped out in 20 years. Yeah. Yep. I, we've been, you've, you've brought up and we've talked in a couple of different ways about plant communication and, you know, I, I just have read the book for the love of soil by Nicole masters. Have you read that? Mm-mm, no, but I've, I'm familiar with her. She's, yeah, she has been studying some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Super cool. Super cool. I mean, and to hear her describe it is really awesome. Um, I went to a workshop and she did this thing where it was like, she had, you know, volunteers from the audience get up and become the, like one person was the plant and she gave them like a bag of Hershey's kisses. And so they were like the, you know, like the plant is like the sugar daddy that starts feeding the soil microbes. And then Mm -hmm. there's like, then there was like, uh, you know, somebody was a nematode, somebody was a protozoa people were pooping and vomiting, you know, because the, I mean, not literally, yeah, but that was that, the whole, that's you know, the was, that's right, right, right. And just her description of it was really, it's like you, you begin to see these things in ways like she, you know, she describes nematodes and protozoa as like the keystone species. So you think of them as like the bear and the mountain lion. Yeah, no, soil, absolutely. You know? And then, you know, they're like the predators and they become, you know, they're beneficial predators though. Like they keep the, you know, populations of bacteria from getting out of control. And then, they, you know, this is also in, in doing this and just this whole system functioning, this is how like nitrogen gets fixed and carbon gets fixed in the soil by, you know, like a, a nematode will eat a bacteria that's like, you know, it's the nematode is like 30 parts to one, whatever it is, carbon and, and the, the bacteria is like six to one. And so it eats, it has to eat five of those uh, or like, and the other part is nitrogen. And so it it has to puke out the excess nitrogen. And then that's how the nitrogen becomes available for the plants because Mm -hmm. they're eating these things, uh, harvesting the carbon. Anyway, uh, it's, no, they're they're literally the same. Like they are, they are the sheep grazing the vineyard. They are, that's exactly what they're doing. But she, uh, if you read this book by her, um, one of the coolest stories that like I gave me sort of chills was uh, about the Moken people in who are the boat people that live off the coast of like Indonesia and Thailand, Southern Thailand, um, around Phuket. If anybody you know knows where Phuket is, but oh, that's how you they, pronounce. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> um, more or less, that's terrible pronunciation. I'm, yeah, my, my pronunciation is pretty bad, but it's <laughs> it looks different and it's not. <laughs> um, uh, they they basically live something like most of the time on the water. You know, they they it, there's all this stuff where like they develop like kids are just you know swimming. They're born in the ocean. They grow up swimming. You know, it's it, they have better eyesight underwater. Like they they their eyes adapt to seeing underwater. Um, anyway, they're they're super and they're they're you know it's sort of like a tribe that has been you know it's like really old it's like really untouched by modernization for the most part although now you know all modernization is now at at all the shores that they're on but there are certain places where they're allowed to go that are you know preserves and parks and stuff like that so but anyway they're hyper in tune with the ocean and Mm -hmm. 
they the story that she told was about how when that massive earthquake hit that caused a tsunami that killed over you know 260,000 people along those coasts of you know the whole southeast asia and indian coast there sri lanka and everywhere um they knew that it was coming they could read the signs from like animals and you know birds and things like that and they brought removed themselves to safety i think like one Moken person was killed or something like that and it was like trying to help somebody else but they actually helped they ended up being some of the you know some of the rescue teams like they were able to alert people and get people out of harm's way and and help people um in that time that's amazing contrasting to that were these fishermen i think these like burmese fishermen who are like squid fishermen and like they were decimated like they were um they were you know, basically, you know, killed. They were inundated by the, the tidal wave and they were just as impacted, even though they spend most of their day fishing, like every day they're out on the water. And they, you know, when the Moken were asked why they thought this happened, they were like, well, because they're only looking at squid, you know, they only pay attention to the mm-hmm. squid. And, and it's this, you know, this idea that we are receiving communications all the time from the earth that we're very unaware of. And, and I think, again back to the ignorance that you're talking about it was just it's this fantastic story about that you know just how how much there is to learn ecologically and how much you know what it could do how it could save our lives potentially i mean like we don't even we don't even know like one percent of the microbes that exist right so i was just listening to somebody talk about the the soil fungi fungi or and it was like or just fungi in general. I don't know if it was soil fungi, but it was like, you know, we know something like we've identified something like 5,000 and there's, we think that there's something like 50 million or something like that. Yeah. There's so much we don't know. Like we are just now, like we don't even really know how water works. Like, like, (laughs) I'm serious. Like it is, it's, it's pretty, I read this book recently called uh, cells, gels and the engines of life by a professor biotechnology at University of Washington, Gerald Pollack. And it's just kind of like, I'm not, I'm not an expert on it. So I read a lot of things that I don't necessarily agree with all the way, but it's interesting. His, his um, study of just like the basic function of water and how it exists is just like fascinating. And I am, anytime I read something like that, I'm just like, holy shit, we don't even know how water works. Like, how do we, why are we making these big ecological choices like pesticides or, or like wholesale tilling or, you know, like it just, to me, I'm like, wow, we are, we are so like, so unaware of how things as a complex actually work. Like, like for instance, uh, fishermen used to like chase dolphins off of the reefs that they were fishing um, for a long time. And, and, and right. what they ended up seeing was a decline in these reefs uh, where the dolphins were. And it was because straight up, like the dolphins were shitting all over the reef, providing <laughs> nutrients. Right, right. Whereas and the fishermen so, would go shit inland. Yeah. yeah. And so they're, they're, chasing, they're chasing them off thinking that they're going to steal their fish. And, you know, the dolphins definitely were. But the, the long-term ecological consequence of removing the dolphins was a nuked reef. Right. So I I really feel like there's so much that we don't know. It's really it's really hard to like put my flag in the dirt on anything anymore. Um, but I I do know wh- where I shouldn't put my flag in the dirt. <laughs> yeah. 
at least. Well, I mean, well, I'll, I'll, I'll phrase this. As, I mean, I have my own thoughts about it, but I'll ask you, like, how does that inform how you live, you know, because of that? Like, how, what does that, what does your ignorance, the, the awareness of your ignorance do to your, 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 uh, oh, it's, it's so freeing to me to, to be able to just be like, I don't know, because like there, there is definitely a lot of pressure, like, especially like if you get at a table full of farmers to like know what you're talking about and to not be the odd man out, but like to be at the table full of farmers and everybody know that you, that nobody knows anything is a much more productive conversation. And, um, there's a guy up here in Oregon named Rob Schultz who uh, he's the vineyard manager for Lemelson Vineyards. And he recently started an organic growers meeting, um, which uh, several of the people you've interviewed are in that group. Uh, like Lee Bartholomew's in it, Die Crisp, and um, Dan Rinke, which you should interview him someday from Art and Science. Uh, those We all sit together in a group and collectively, you know, just realize that we, that we don't know what we're talking about. And it's the most freeing and best thing that I've ever been a part of. What a great group. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know. it's, like, it's awesome. The dream is, you know, a place where, you know, truth is like the guiding principle, not your own ego. And in that pursuit, any idea is worth listening to if it's, if you, you know, or not any idea is worth listening to, but any idea, uh, it's, it's more about, pushing the ideas forward, you know, and, and, you know, you want to debate in a good way because that makes your idea either stronger or it eliminates a bad idea. Um, and no, it's, it's, it's so, it's so great, honestly, to, cause, and you know, like everybody, everybody has their entrenched beliefs. Like, like farmers are pretty good at having entrenched beliefs because, (laughs) um, for one, if, if it's worked for you, then you definitely like believe it. Or if it's something that you know a lot about, it's something that you're more comfortable um, having a strong opinion on it. And even if even if it turns out your opinion's wrong, it's you know for anybody um, we've seen this play out in America a lot. If if your idea is wrong, it doesn't necessarily matter. But in this group, in this group, you can there's definitely room to be like, well, I know that that's what you believe, but you should read this and there's no like stubbornness really or like nobody's feelings get hurt it's just very like or right. at least or at least that's my perception i might just be like the asshole in the room that nobody likes and i'm like this place is great <laughs> you're the bully like dropping yeah. on everybody <laughs> there's a vote happening right now to oust you um, <laughs> you're about to get an email um <laughs> No, I'd be shocked if that was true. Although, you know, um, I don't know, jealousy, garden jealousy might put put push you out. I, I know it's going to be my tomatoes that, that get me kicked out. <laughs> I know that already. <laughs> um, well, why are you, I mean, it seems kind of lazy of you to grow morels, don't you? Can't you just go into the forest? I mean, like how far is it for you to go forage for morels where you are? I work a nine to five, Adam, <laughs> and I have a baby. <laughs> nice. Well, 
any closing thoughts? Anything that you feel like you'd like to say as a end to um, part two? Yeah, read that book, Healthy Crops. It's for yeah. free. There's no reason not to. Um, and go easy on it's yourself. For free? It's for free. If you try to buy it, it's like $250. So the Gaia Foundation just published it for free. Where where can you get that? Um, we're at like the a... Gaia Foundation's website. Just look the up Gaia Healthy Foundation. Crops, Gaia, G-A-I. Oh, God, A. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Sorry, I went to school in Oklahoma. <laughs> Spelling is my first language. Don't blame Oklahoma. Oklahoma's, <laughs> Oklahoma produced Will Rogers and yeah. Arlo Guthrie, or Woody Guthrie, I mean. <laughs> Maybe Arlo, too. I have um, a teacher that says Oklahoma, it's not that bad. <laughs> I thought it was Oklahoma is okay. Yeah, um, it is. Wait, I, nice. All right. Um, take it easy on yourself. Why? Because there is a lot to know and anybody pretending like they know it all is um, either completely misleading you, trying to sell you something, or um, is going to find out soon that, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. It's, I'm not saying don't believe experts. I'm just saying like, you know, take it easy on yourself. There's a lot to know. And you probably shouldn't follow all the advice that's out there because it's destroying our planet. <laughs> Especially if there's something to be sold with that advice. Yeah. Like I have the hardest time with agronomists. Um, like they're all good people. They're humans, I, I hear. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but there is, you know, like imagine like the that job's got to be a difficult one because you have all of these products available to sell and you need to become experts on all of them and the information out there on these products Um it's usually been extrapolated from poorly understood studies or, um, you know, it's just total hogwash, but like it is your job to move that stuff on the market. And, you know, there's huge, huge issues that people end up dealing with because of over application of, you know, things out there. Like the big one was calcium. When everybody was like, you got a lime, you got to buffer your pH, you got to lime it all the way up. And all of these vineyards were suddenly super deficient in magnesium um, because we just didn't understand the, the calcium magnesium balance really. And we know, we know about it now, you know? So, so I would just like, even listening to me, like don't believe everything I say either. And like, there's info out there and you should go look for it because it will yeah. fascinate the shit out of you. Well, this is a question since you brought that up, I, I think like, a real practical application when you when we talked about talking you sent me a list with links to a lot of um you know to a lot of these studies to these scientific studies where it's actual you know real science is being done to discover the answers or the, you know the next questions that we'll that we'll need to be asking because of the answers that we find from that study um and i don't think most people know how to find that stuff or well, access it or what what are you doing to come across those kind of things? Are you, you know, like... I am yeah. procrastinating from all the other things I'm supposed to do. And I got... <laughs> that's pretty much it. Like, the way I procrastinate is peer-reviewed research. And I don't get a lot done, so I do a lot of research. Yeah, um, so where, but where do you do... Where do you find peer-reviewed research about things like, you know, soil, soil biology? Well, the... I mean, Google Scholar is an excellent tool if you don't have, like, the university access. Um, 
just Google Scholar search something you're interested in. And you might have to do some digging, but for the most part, that's the main tool I use is Google Scholar. And then the other thing I do is I, um, I read a lot of books that either people recommend to me or uh, Acres, the organic farming magazine usually has a reading list um, yeah. on their website. And, but what I think there are a couple um, studies that I think if you just Google the names of them and I can read them out, uh, because I think that they're pretty important and people should know about them. Yeah, um, one is Root Exudates, a Key Factor for Soil and Plant, an overview by S.S. Moore, S.C. Shindy, and M.C. Kefstra. Um What else is there? Just look up Rhizosphere or Rhizosphagy, Professor James White at Rutgers. There's lots of info there. There's what are some other ones? R-H-I-Z-O-P-H-A-G-Y. Yes. And, and Adam and I, before we recorded this, we had three different uh, pronunciations for it and we had to watch a YouTube video to figure out which yes. one was the correct way. It's rhizophage. Rhizophage. Yeah. Um, another one is, uh, it's just called Fallow Effects on Soil and it's for free. And it is by DC Nielsen. And that's a really cool one. Uh, this, that one is a review, a 30-year review of uh, no-till and oh, wow. going over 30 years of research from many different universities and uh, specifically Nebraska, Colorado. A lot of it was done on annual crops um, because most of those studies where they were really interested was in annual crops. Um, the other one is, let's see, it's called Soil pH Nutrient Relationships, the diagram. That's uh, the right. research where they were looking through and realizing that maybe the science isn't still there to back up um, our, our yeah. uh, this pH diagram chart. That, this diagram that's been in textbooks since like the, the 40s or something like that is yeah. basically inaccurate and yeah. unsupportable. It's not like um, completely nullified because right, it's in, just... in, in the presence of zero microbes, it still holds true. <laughs> um, right. and then, uh, there is, um, let's see. Well, I can throw the one, one in that's really that. interesting is rhizosphere engineering, enhancing sustainable plant ecosystems, uh, productivity, which is like literally a book on rhizosphere engineering, which is right. extremely interesting. Yeah. I was just going to throw in the Rodale Institute's, uh, just ongoing study since the, I think since the eighties side-by-side conventional organic farming yeah um of row crops so like this is like 60 million acres or more of of agriculture in the u.s alone not to mention globally uh that's what these that's what this is applicable to and just showing that this idea that you can't grow the same productivity with organic or or no-till organic um actually i think they have three different ones they have like a like a no-till cover crop. I mean, you can read all about it, like the different things. I won't try to break it down, but it's like, yeah. And they they keep updating the practices of both farming. So it's not like they're stuck in like some 80s model right. of organic and they're still using DDT on the conventional or something like that. It's like they keep updating the practices to whatever the current, you know, mainstream practices in each farming uh, module is. And continually like they just have data i mean you don't have to take my word to it look at f like 40 plus years of data uh, yeah of side-by-side -side comparison yeah there i in, think there's the exact same context so yeah 
there seems to be a fear out there that's pervading that if you do switch that you will have less total production and more disease. And in fact, there is so much research that shows the exact opposite. But that right. fear is a pretty big selling point to uh, agronomy companies. You know, right. like I love, I love the thing that you said about in our last one. <laughs> I'm going to quote you back to yourself where you said like the money you make is the money you save or the money you don't spend the money, the money you make in like a occupation, like viticulture is the money you don't spend. Yeah. I mean, there's really no money to be made in grapes. Um, right. I mean, honestly, produce is the same sort of situation, but the a majority of your margin is, is money that you don't spend and labor that you don't do. So if you can not till and not spray, you know, as much or as harmful of things and not spend yeah. money on fertilizer, you know, right. you're going to, you're going to be a more profitable business always, you know, right. if you're, if you have less money flowing out yeah. I, to me, it makes more sense to figure out how to make, if you know, you need fertilization or it makes so much more sense to make it yourself. Um, these, the, you, I think that there's always an assumption that the best and brightest minds are like in the labs coming up with, the new fertilizers and and it's just simply not true. Usually, usually it's just like a basic fermentation of just stuff, and yeah. anybody can do that in their backyard. If you can make kimchi, you can make fertilizer. Yeah, there's well, I mean, if you read any of the exposés about Monsanto and the products that they've been selling for years, it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's utter. It's like it's. I'm trying to think of it. It's it's cynical. It's not even just like they didn't put a lot into it. It's like they bottled something that already exists in your ground, you know, and sold it back to you. Yeah. It, oh, I mean, that is 100% the biological sprays that are out there are just different yeah. strains of BT or Bacillus subtilis right. or Pseudomonas or, you know, it's it's not like all they're doing is isolating something, isolating something that's in your compost, you know? So... Right. It is, and it's not that hard to blow up populations of things if you wanted to on your own. It honestly just takes a little sugar, water, and some air. Um, Unless you want a pure strain, but that you don't need that either. Or like a sheep. Or a sheep, exactly. I was actually thinking of you know if you're in a small like let's let's say you're in an urban backyard vineyard like as many of us are who are listening to this, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, you might want to employ a herd of bunny rabbits. Oh, because um, sheep really don't work in a little small urban environment, but a herd of bunny rabbits would absolutely work. And I think you could probably sell tickets to that vineyard. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and bunny rabbit poop is like amazing and they can graze all your cover crops and they're not really that interested in grapes well they probably would be you'd have to keep them out of bunny rabbit height but that's not too hard bunny rabbits are pretty short so it kind of works um yeah i would anyway. i i would do bunnies but i would kill them on accident i know i would well would, i mean if you i'm if more you of like too free range a little bit sometimes even with my own son where i'm like yeah that's dangerous it'll be okay and then like i'm i know that a coyote's not going to eat my son but they would for sure get all my bunnies because i'd be like yeah right. i figured out how to do it without fences <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't recommend it in a big, uh, big outdoor environment. The bunny, the free range bunny thing. I mean, it's, it's working in the Australian wine regions. They're free ranging their bunnies. So. Are they? <laughs> they have a massive uh, rabbit overpopulation problem. <laughs> oh no, it's like our ground squirrel population issues exactly. that we have. Oh man. Um, well, maybe yeah. Think twice. You know, if they're if they're deep burrowers, maybe get the kind that don't burrow so much, <laughs> or provide a nice you know faux burrow that's above ground for them to. You hide mean in. you mean create water infiltration points? Oh, lovely! Yes, yeah. yeah. See what I did there? <laughs> there's a there's a, a guy. He used to be in some rock band. I can't forget. I, I forget what it was, but he's a professor at Oregon State University now, and he's just uh, he's been studying voles and like the effect that voles actually have on like biology and he's like very pro-vole and um, i'm with him i'm with him on it yeah. i'm like yeah if we want to stop killing voles and so we've been trying to do stuff in the vineyard which we we are still going after pocket gophers but uh -huh. sheep trampling out vole holes and it has been working really well and then the late season suckers coming from the bottoms of plants we leave and it's amazing how many of those are gone the following spring because the voles are eating those instead of the vines themselves. Because they're more tender too. They're, yeah, they're more tender. It's easy to, yeah, easier access. Nice. That's a but good But I didn't idea. come up with that. That was, I heard Patty Skink is from, she's a professor at OSU was talking about it. And so I just copied her. And it, That's great. I don't know if I'll ever go back. It's not that big of a difference. It doesn't create a ton more pruning labor later like I thought it would. It's, it's fine. And huh. it seems to keep the voles off the vines. That's fantastic. Well, that's a that's gold right there, <laughs> potentially. Um, well, cool. Thanks so much, Drew. Really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening, and a huge thanks to those of you who have subscribed to the Organic Wine Podcast Patreon page. You've been a huge help in making this podcast possible, both financially and just the inspiration that you give me and it's humbling and i'm so grateful we're actually getting close to paying for the hard costs of websites and fees that are necessary to have a podcast of course there's still lots of costs involved my time is not paid for but it's really nice to just have some of those monthly bills covered i'm extremely grateful for and humbled by your support and if you aren't a Patreon subscriber, the link is in the show notes. And I've created a support page at organicwinepodcast.com with that link, as well as other ways you can support this podcast. Thank you so much for whatever you can do.